0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The Royal Navy's £25 million minehunter mishap viral video of the Quayside crash in Bahrain has led some to conclude incompetence.
1: Sometimes uh, accidents uh, and incidents happen, and as with all of these things, we don't say it's incompetence when we see an aircraft uh, come down, very rare occasion, just as this would be a rare occasion.
0: So how could it have happened? Mike and I are joined by a former senior Royal Navy officer to discuss the many and complicated factors that could be involved. Also on SITREP, the Chief of General Staff says we'll need a citizen army to stand any chance of winning a war in future. And a senior Conservative MP tells us he's right.
2: I think that our problem is that we don't have enough people serving now, so we don't have any options other than that that would have to happen if we entered into any kind of conflict.
0: And the new novel offering a very real warning about the possibility of killer robots at war.
3: We were handed the ethical problems of nuclear weapons, and we've been playing the ethical catch-up game ever since we did that. And we probably need to get an ethical framework and rules sorted out before lethal autonomous weapons appear in great numbers on the battlefield.
1: with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael
0: Clark In the mobile phone age, we're all at risk of having our worst moments captured and shared. Tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of people have now seen the moment Royal Navy mine hunter HMS Chiddingfold reversing at a sharp angle in Bahrain harbour hit HMS Bangor. A lot of people have shared that video for entertainment, but it's also a pretty uncomfortable watch for many. You can see what's coming and actually moments before the crash hear distant, frantic shouting. Mike, what did you think when you saw it
4: Do you know, I I just thought it was a visual representation of the Navy lark. I mean, it was it was the sort of thing that used to happen every week on the famous radio show. And you could just imagine Lieutenant Phillips, you know, saying left hand down a bit, followed by a crash. It's not Mm. great uh, PR. And I was thinking back, um, you know, the last couple of times that the Navy's had to deal with this sort of PR disaster. Not the most important thing in the world, but it doesn't look good. And the last time was 2007 when HMS Cornwall had some of its sailors um, abducted, as it were, by Iranian Revolutionary Guards uh, when they were patrolling in the al arab Waterway. And then before that, do you remember HMS Jupiter that got jammed under Tower Bridge? That was mm, 1980- yes. 1984. So you've got to go back quite a lot of years to, to, to hit these sort of low spots in PR. Neither None of these things are the most serious thing that can happen in the Navy by any stretch, but they don't look good. And at a time when the Navy is having to think very carefully about it, Its resources, you know, it needs this sort of thing like a hole in the head.
0: Well, the Royal Navy have said little officially about the accident. An inquiry is underway, but more video and photos online show the hole that's been punched through HMS Bangor's fiberglass hull. Our sources say the cost of repair could be as much as £25 million. But how can something like this happen? Well, to help us understand, let's bring in Alistair Halliday, who commanded three Royal Navy ships during his career with the senior service. Alistair, good to have you on SITREP. Thank you for your time today. Just before we look at the potential factors at play here, how hard is it to safely bring a ship like this alongside? Because this is not like parking a car, is it?
1: Uh, It's a great question, Kate. I mean, in the end of the day, it's not that easy, but people who do it are pretty well trained because, of course, it's such an important function to do. Every time the ship uh, leaves the wall, uh, it's got to get back alongside again. So, so it's very important uh, part of life at sea that the uh, birthing and unbirthing is executed properly. So it is important and it is actually does rely on lots of different skills, but the people who end up doing it are go through lots of training and uh, expertise, etc. beforehand to make sure that they largely do execute it properly.
0: And Alistair, the working theory, though not officially confirmed, seems to be that there was some kind of cross-wiring which meant propulsion controls did the reserve of what they should do. Does that seem like a credible explanation?
1: I mean and obviously I don't know any of the sort of technical details but I mean what happens is as soon as you have any incident like this you'd immediately start what's called a ship's investigation just to understand all the factors uh, involved the first thing is to understand exactly what has happened before any blame or criticism is, is attached and, and clearly people will look at okay we all the, uh, the mechanical aspects working okay was all, all of that functioning what are all the other wider factors you know the tidal stream the wind and all the other bits and pieces so build up a whole process, uh, an understanding exactly what happened. So there is absolutely a possibility it could have been a technical thing. Um, These things do happen. Uh, Although, again, there are a lot of other mechanisms in place which should prevent that.
0: And if it is down to a technical problem, um, another thing I presume the investigation will be looking at is why that had not been detected before the ship goes back into service from maintenance.
1: Yes. So these incidents do happen from time to time. And I think the key thing is The bridge team are pretty experienced and need to be able to be in a position to take the reactions to avoid it becoming a more serious issue. I do remember my own experience uh, when I was uh, captain of HMS Bridport going into Portsmouth uh, Harbour and when we had a a malfunction of the instrumentation on the bridge. And so actually, when it looked like the uh, voice were going ahead, one was going astern. Uh, Sorry, the other way around when we wanted to go astern. So we had to take some pretty quick reactions, including dropping the anchor inside the basin which stopped which basically steadied the ship and then i anchor then i went alongside on one shaft so you know yes there was a a lot of uh, excitement for uh, for a few moments but the professionalism kicked in and i think that's what normally mm. happens
0: and asked, when the ship comes back from maintenance is the captain would the captain be responsible for checking that the ship is in full working order to avoid any errors and or, or technical issues
1: well overall is, is in overall responsible for the ship and the ship's company so yes but obviously we'll go on the recommendations from uh, the marine engineering officer or the the engineering staff who will have conducted and supervised any sort of uh, engineering updates or maintenance or whatever and so it's always one of the key reports that the ship is ready for sea before uh departing and that means that the report goes to the commanding officer but the, the, absolutely the captain takes overall responsibility
0: Mike, I mentioned the cost of the damage. There's also the reputational cost that has fallen on the Navy when the responsibility could lie elsewhere.
4: Yes, and until we get an investigation, we really don't know... I mean, one of the problems with this is that, you know, things at sea, partly you know, in relation to what Alistair was saying, they, they sort of happen in slow motion, even though you might have to react very quickly. And so what makes this look worse is the sort of inevitability of it. I mean, these, you know, Sandown class mine hunters are, are genuinely light. They're meant to be light, small displacement, but even 600 or so tons moving, you know, at sort of half a knot creates this sort of slow motion inevitability. And that's one of the things that makes it look worse and the reputational damage potentially greater because this little bit of, of uh, footage will be out there forever now. And everybody will look at it because mm-hmm. it's so uh, photogenic, unfortunately.
0: And Alistair, let's just talk about other potential factors. The weather appears to be sunny and calm. Can we presume at this harbour there wouldn't be any strong currents below the surface?
1: I mean, I, I think it happened in Bahrain, didn't it? So again, from what I've seen, it looks fairly benign, um, probably less of a factor. So I, I don't think that would be would sound to me significant. But if I just pick up on uh, on what Mike just said just then, I mean, I, I mean, I think in a way, I think it perhaps if I may, needs to be put into perspective. You know, the numbers of times that ships are, are birthing and unbirthing, leaving parts. It, it's, some of these things do happen. I, I suppose now that everyone captures things on uh, on phones and media. So so this mm. absolutely is this. But I don't think this is, in my view, it would be a big causing reputational damage to the Royal Navy. Mm a pretty minor incident which has caused yeah absolutely so it's caused some damage and that will be repaired there's a team out there with all the kit to repair grp uh, quite quickly so the ship will be on on back on task very very quickly so uh, you know i don't want to sort of sound complacent because it will be investigated and any lessons learned but in the grand scheme of things this is not a major issue
0: yeah and alistair what did you think when you saw that footage though
1: well first thing yeah, i mean then? friend of mine sent it to me as a sort of a jokey thing. And I said, well, what's the thing? It just looks a minor scrape. That was my initial reaction. And, and that was before I frankly then saw the damage. I could see there was some damage. But, you know, ships do go alongside and in the past when they were wooden, they would sort of graunch a bit. And actually, occasionally, it might just be a, a coat of paint. This has clearly mm-hmm. got some uh damage which will need to be repaired but that's why we've got a team out there or the navy's got a team out there which should be able to do that obviously when you have bigger ships hitting at speed and you have start having you know i mean in this case there was no casualties um sounds like the ship's company well trained took all the right reactions etc so so there's lots more positives in there i think sometimes when you do hear these things happen they can be you know much more uh serious and uh and
0: how long will how long will the investigation take
1: well, normally, I mean, a ship's investigation will be a day, probably a couple of days, but then it will go into, then it will need to be assessed. And if there's a need to do a further or fuller uh, external investigation, that will be sorted out, I think. So, so I mean, very quickly, the, the, the Navy will come to understanding the, the, the key reasons behind it.
0: Alistair Halliday, good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your thoughts. Mike, the timing of this just adds to the awkwardness, though, doesn't it? Because HMS Bangor is the last of the Navy's sundown class mine hunters because HMS Penzance left service just days before.
4: Yes, that's right. And um, in the mine hunters are something that Britain does very well. You know, the Navy is famous for its mine countermeasure expertise and the ships that do it. And not a lot of other navies can, can match this. And we've had this force out in the Gulf for some time now because you know, they're vulnerable. And, of course, here we see both in the Strait of Hormuz and now in the in the Red Sea off the bab al-Mandeb Straits, international navigation is back on the top of the agenda. So, um, you know, we probably are going to need our mine hunters in the next one to two years, more than we have in the last four or five.
0: And Bangal was already due to retire next year anyway. Do you think she'll just be decommissioned early now?
4: Well, there might be that temptation just to save the immediate cost of the repairs, certainly if they're running into the sort of millions we're talking about. But I hope not because they really need them. Uh, this is not a good time to take another mine hunter away from a mission which is growing in importance. So I hope that they will, I mean, as Alistair was saying, I mean, the damage is you know, not, not insignificant, but it's not huge. I hope they'll just repair it quickly so that Bangor can stay on station, even if it's due to be decommissioned next year. Again, it might even have its its commission extended because what they're doing there is of growing importance.
0: Yeah, because it leaves the Navy's mission in the Gulf with just two mine hunters instead of three. How much impact will that have on operations there right now?
4: Uh, quite considerable because uh, they don't just spend their time mine hunting. They're also acting as patrol ships and they do, you know, perform a diplomatic function as well. And they, they can back up the naval forces, which are increasing there now. I mean, you know, we've got the, the Lancasters out there, the Diamonds in the Red Sea, the Richmond is on its way, may almost have arrived there now. And I suspect, you know, we'll see more Navy ships in that area over the next uh, few months. And, you know, what this exposes is the fact that, you know, we know the Navy is very busy. We know the Navy is very good at what it does but it's there's no scope for attrition you know we are we're always one ship away one accident away from leaving a hole in our force structure and so every Mm. function we perform we perform with just about enough and there's only so long you can go on doing that before you really get caught out
0: news discussions and analysis this is sitrep Now, we talked last week about the doomsday clock getting its annual update and the people behind it have kept it at 90 seconds to midnight. It remains the most dangerous assessment of the risk there will be a catastrophic global war in the project's history. We know that Germany thinks Russia could attack NATO countries in five to ten years, that Sweden has warned its citizens they need to be prepared for the possibility of war in the coming years. And now we have a similar warning from the head of the British army in a speech away from microphones and cameras. The chief of the general staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders, said Britain needs to train and equip a citizen army to prepare the country for a potential land war. Ukraine, he said, brutally illustrates that regular armies start wars citizen armies win them. Mike, uh, this has generated a lot of headlines with the word conscription, something the government says isn't on the table.
4: No, and they're right to say that because it isn't. Everyone misunderstands. When Patrick Sanders talked about a citizen army, he was talking about a volunteer citizens army, not conscription. I mean, the the, the issue of conscription is that, in a sense, what he's saying is that if we don't increase the size of the army into a bigger volunteer army, if we don't create second echelon forces, we'll be forced back to conscription, which nobody Mm -hmm. wants. And, you know, as I've been saying for the last two days, it seems, you know, the the British army goes back to 1660, 29th of May 1660 on Blackheath was the the moment when the British army as we now understand it was created that's 364 years ago and for only 25 of those years have we had conscription for between 1916 and 1920 and then between 1939 and 1960 so 25 years the rest Mm. of the time it is deep in our DNA that we have a volunteer army. And if you think about, I mean, the First World War, I think, is the, is the model here. I mean, the, the professional army went to war. And Patrick Sanders said professional armies start the wars and citizen armies finish them. Yep. And that's exactly right. So the professional army went to war in 1914, 160,000 troops. That army was destroyed at the Battle of Mons, the Battle of Ypres, the first Battle of Ypres. And then the citizen army, Kitchener's army of a million, million and a half, went to war behind the the regular army, that army was more or less destroyed in the Somme and the campaign afterwards. And that in turn then was replaced by a citizen conscript army after conscription came in, which was the army, that probably the best army Britain ever fielded in history. And that was the army that went on to win. It was the best army on the Western Front by 1918, by a long way. And so we went through regular, um, volunteer and then conscript army in the First World War. In the Second War, the pattern was similar Again, the professional army went to war in 1939. It was rescued, 225,000 of them at Dunkirk, and that became the core of a citizen conscript army. At At that time, we moved straight to conscription. A conscript army, and that conscript army went right through till, through into the Cold War to 1960. And that was quite unusual. But there's a big distinction between a conscript army and a volunteer citizen army. And what Patrick's talking about is that, you know, the regular army is never big enough to actually win a war. You, you can go to war, but you can only win a war with something bigger.
0: And Mike, that concept of a citizen army is exactly what we've seen happen in Ukraine. Indeed, the UK has been key in training Ukraine citizen sh- soldiers.
4: Yeah, and the, you know the, this training program has been pretty good, basic uh, infantry training. I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty truncated, but it seems to work because, I mean, a lot of these uh, Ukrainian soldiers who are fighting really hard on the front line now and they're having a really tough time, a year ago or 18 months ago, most of them were just civilians. They were doing ordinary middle-class civilian jobs, and there they are. And that operation, the Interflex operation that Britain is running, has been pretty effective, and it does show, and the army's quite keen to learn the lessons of this, not to say you can just reproduce it, but to learn how to do it. It does show that you, could, that you can create, from scratch, a pretty good um, basic training programme, which brings people up to the level where they can operate. That the challenge is in operating in bigger units. We're training people up to sort of company-level operations, but it's, you need a bigger step then to train up to battalion and then brigade-level operations. You can get from company to brigade to battalion reasonably well, but brigade-level operations is a bigger challenge and then obviously divisional operations. But the, the model is there, and uh, there's a lot of thinking going on at the moment into if we had to use this model for ourselves, what else would we need to do with it?
0: Well, General Sanders is not the only one who wants the civilian population to think hard about the idea of serving in uniform. The former Conservative leader, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, who also served six years in the Scots Guards, has told SITREP we wouldn't have any other option if it came to a war. He's been talking to Sean Greschek.
2: We suddenly learnt from the Ukraine war that the kind of war that we thought would never be fought again, with huge minefields and trenches and stuff like that, it's back we don't have the the reserves that we used to have to fight wars on that scale we have tiny amounts of we seem to run out of ammunition stuff to give to the ukrainians because we never thought this would ever happen again well it is happening and it's you know it's a big wake-up call
5: would you agree with those Mm -hmm. that say that people should be prepared to to be called up to fight
2: I, I, I think that our problem is that we don't have enough people serving now, so we don't have any options other than that that would have to happen if we entered into any kind of conflict. Uh, I fervently hope we don't, because, of course, the, uh, the scale of warfare now is on a much, much more dangerous level than we could possibly have experienced previously with the possession of nuclear weapons. But um, the reality is, if you look at Ukraine and Russia, that is the kind of war if Russia gets involved. And uh, most of Eastern Europe is desperately worried about uh, the nature of a, a Russia su- uh, succeeding uh, in Ukraine and then turning their attention to test NATO uh, on NATO's boundaries. So all of this um, uh, is part of the problem that uh, we, whether we like it or not, we are in a contest and the contest is about how do you govern people uh, and at the moment we appear to be asleep at the wheel, as it were.
5: You've spoken at your disappointment at the size of, of our military um, do you feel our armed forces are currently fit to face the potential threats facing the UK?
2: No, I think it's the simple answer to that, because it's not. we haven't based our armed forces on this kind of threat. Uh, and we're not alone, by the way. You have to look around Europe. I mean, Britain is ahead of the rest of Europe in all of this. No question, you know, we have the best and some of the best equipped armed forces, but we've learnt a very brutal lesson the last two years, and that is that uh, all the assumptions we made about warfare have been turned on their head by the Ukrainian, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're now seeing lots of stuff that we assume would never happen. Five mile wide minefields, the use of drones, the nature of how successful are tanks. All these are big, big questions uh, that are to, need to be answered, and manpower is critical in all of this. So the West has got a lot to think about on this and to recognise that we need more potency if we're going to face this threat as it comes in in the future. And I think the generals are all saying it and the admirals are saying it, we're we're not there.
5: So how much bigger should our armed forces be then?
2: Well, it's difficult, uh, uh, you know, I'm not a general, I'm not serving in the military, but what is clearly the case is I think they're too small right now my personal view is i think we need to increase the reserve dramatically it's something that's much cheaper of course than than professional soldiers all the time but it's something that if you look at america they have a very significant reserve we our reserve is still not very big and it needs to be bigger if you're going to have a smallish army you need a much bigger reserve to be able to come in so all of these things i know are doing debate to the defense committee i know People on it, and they've been saying they've been warning about this, they have so, but it's difficult, you know. We can straighten circumstances, we've got inflation, we've got real problems. Governments have to make choices about this, and the government has said they're going to get to 2.5% of spending, so that's all good, but when they can afford it, and so the rest of Europe is nowhere near that at the moment, and that's the other big argument.
5: And speaking of money, the budget is coming up very quickly. Would you rather the Chancellor use money for tax cuts or greater defence spending?
2: Well, you've got to get the economy moving. Uh, one of our problems is you don't have the, you don't have the wherewithal to spend on defence if your economy is in straitened circumstances, so the choices get more difficult. So we always talk about tax cuts, I prefer to say growth, so he's going to have to take the burdens off. We have one of the highest, uh, you know, because of all the crisis, because of the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, we have a very high level of taxation. And that came as a result of that. But we now need to ease that burden off the public so that they have more of their own money to spend. That brings in better tax revenues. So the the lower the taxes, the more the revenues increase. The good old Laffer Curve idea, which is that, you know, that's how it works. So we need to take the pressure off the public. That's all part of growing your economy in a growing economy. 2.5% 2.5% becomes a much greater sum of money and gives you greater potency so there's a balance between the two, it's not just a choice, the reality is we do need to get the economy growing, growing the economy will mean we'll have more money to spend on defence
5: And in terms of growing reserves how do we do that?
2: Well I think it's a case of re-alerting the public to the nature of what we do I think, um, you know, the problem for much many of the public they, they don't really come into contact with the military in their daily lives And one of the pluses about having a a larger reserve is that lots of those reservists will be working in different places, different companies, different factories, and their stories will be interesting to those around them. And that's important because it gives a a sense of the military, it gives a sense of what service is all about. And I think therefore you offer all sorts of incentives for people to come and get involved. When I was Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, I remember allowing the reserve to be advertised in the job centres. And at the same time, we opened up to say, look, if you go on your two-week holiday up until then, if you were on benefits, (laughs) you you couldn't do your two-week holiday. You had to report back. Well, we said, no, if you're serving on the reserve and you have to do a two-week millage exercise, then that's fine. Uh, We let you go and do that and you won't have to turn up to show that you're still looking for a job. And it helps those looking for jobs. They went into work much quicker if they'd been a reservist as well. So all of that helps build it up. And I think if we do that, I think lots of people would get involved, but they just don't know about it.
5: Would you support conscription? Uh,
2: I don't think you need conscription at this particular point. But what you need to have is make sure that you have... Um, uh, people get understand what the nature of what it is they would go into, and there are lots of good reasons why you can jo- go into the services. And particularly when it comes to reserves, I think, you know, you need to incentivize the attractiveness of that and the support that takes place for those that would be in the reserve. Um, so I, I'm, I don't think conscription will work at this stage because you'd have to have a greater immediate presence of the threat before you moved into that. But I do think that we need to be doing more about, you know, getting people to understand uh, the nature of service and why it's a good thing to do.
0: That was a former conservative leader, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, and there's much more of his conversation with Sean online now in an extra sit rep podcast. I'll share the details at the end of the program. Mike, to come back to your original point, if this relies on volunteering, are these warnings of the risk of war going to work?
4: Yes, I think they do. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't think the public is, um, uh, it's d- not difficult to persuade the public that we are now living in a much darker international environment. I, I think, you know, there's a common sense element that we all understand that that is the case and that the future is likely to be, to be more challenging. But we've got to be realistic. Um, we're not here talking about, as it were, the, you know, the First World War that mobilized two and a half million men or the Second World War, that mobilised three and a half million. We're not talking in those terms. I mean, the big ground forces in Europe are provided, or will be provided, or should be provided, by Germany and Poland, and actually the Scandinavian Nordic states. That's where the big manpower ultimately will come from. And Britain plays the role of a strategic reserve, very much by its naval power, but also by having a military um, that uh, an army that is able to go to the continent and be really effective in what it does. And what um, Patrick Sanders is saying is that the army is not big enough to be effective. It's not big enough to help in playing that strategic reserve role and making a difference where it matters. And what we need is not an army of, you know, a million, two, two and a half million, but we need an army of something over 100,000. If the army is to make a difference on the continent of Europe and be capable of doing the various other things that people want the army to do, we've got to get back to something like that Cold War level. I mean, in the Cold War, remember, the army was 180,000 of whom 60,000 were the British army of the Rhine well we're not going, not going to go back to that but something around the 115 120,000 is generally regarded as you know the requirement to be effective in the role yeah. we think and we always say that we can play in NATO that's realistically what we're talking about and I don't think the public would find that too outrageous because I'm pretty sure the public have a good sense of the fact that the threat is increasing quite quite quickly now
0: Now, if you're of a certain age, the phrase killer robots might make you think of the 80s sci-fi classic Robocop. If you want to warn people that machines which can choose to kill will soon be fact, writing a fiction novel might seem counterintuitive. That, though, is just what former Royal Artillery officer Chris Lincoln Jones has done. He has factual credentials to back up his novel as an expert in drones and the laws of war. He's helped shape the UK's current policy that a human should always be part of the decisions on lethal force. He's been telling me about Dr. Moore's automaton, which begins with a very factual forward warning. It would be a good idea to get our ethical framework for dealing with the rise of killer robots before they make their presence felt.
3: I th- think, as I point out in the book, we were handed the ethical problems of nuclear weapons uh, from a world war, and we've been playing the ethical catch-up game ever since we did that, the next big thing is going to be lethal autonomous weapon systems, robot warriors. And we probably need to get an ethical framework and rules sorted out before they start to appear in great numbers on the battlefield, and I'm sure they will.
0: Can you just give me, without giving too much away, an outline of the plot then?
3: Well, I've gone into the Marvel Universe a bit and altered reality slightly and have a conflict developing on the Syria-Iraq border. And a very brilliant programmer is captured by DSTL, Defence Scientific Technical Laboratories, and he makes for them a machine intelligence. He doesn't like the word artificial intelligence because he doesn't believe that's what things are at the moment. This intelligence, at first, they say, well, we want to guard a camp. Soldiers get bored and lose concentration sitting in a sentry box. Machines never do. So they come up with this idea, but then get carried away with the whole thing and take two Ajax reconnaissance vehicles, and they fit them to drive without a driver in them. But the Americans put it into a drone, make a fully autonomous drone drone. They then use that to um, exact revenge on a terrorist group and the unforeseen consequences of that develop the latter start stages of the book.
0: And you describe this book as a drama, not a documentary, but it does beg the question, is the UK actually working on weapons that could one day be fired by a machine alone without any human involvement?
3: Well, I know there are a lot of demonstrations of this capability going on, and I'm, I certainly um, am aware that um, ro- robot logistics are seen as a good idea. So, for example, you could put one of those big convoys that we used to have in Afghanistan, and you wouldn't know where the human is in the line of 8, 9, 10 or whatever vehicles, and they're all you know, slaved to follow one of the vehicles and controlled uh, remotely. So that's the reality now. Uh, I was out running in Basra during the, uh, the latter part of the Iraq conflict there, and rockets came into the camp, and the uh, automatic defense system there shot them down, luckily for me. <laughs> and that was a, a case where human intervention was there, but it tended to be to stop the weapon firing rather than to say you can fire. Because machines are so much faster than humans, we're going to need them to fight other machines. So we will have to investigate this. And I suspect we will have to field these machines.
0: And there's a quote from one of your characters, a colonel at the start of the book, which goes, whatever our political masters might say, others are developing autonomous weapons. When the time comes, we may not have a choice. Being on the moral high ground makes you an easy target. Do you believe the policy of always having a human in that kill chain can't last?
3: I think in the it, it's where is that human in the kill chain? If the human has set up the rules that that machine abides by, you could argue they're still there. So if you release a typhoon jet to attack. Houthi terrorists in the Red Sea and you've given that pilot all the information that's needed and gone through the whole targeting process he's almost a machine in the loop he gets there, recognises the target he knows that the rules of engagement are being obeyed because he can go through them and he, she, drops the bomb Well, you can make a machine do exactly that. And it will only do that. It won't allow emotions to interfere with it. As you can tell, I'm not exactly against these machines, although I'm wary of them.
0: Yes, and you mentioned earlier how you yourself may well have been been saved by autonomous anti-missile defense systems. Um, Have we learned anything from them about the risks versus the benefits, do you think?
3: I don't think we've had a chance to, certainly not in in my awareness. All we have really, to sound a warning, are things like the um, self-drive cars, where you can see that they have had problems and there have even been accidents using them where they've been released onto the, the roads. It's developing trust, I think, in the machines and developing reliability and bringing the failure rate and the error rates right down as low as they possibly can go. you just then got to make a decision, are we going to do this or not?
0: Which country do you think is likely to be the first to go down that route of using autonomous weapons that target people?
3: Um, The United States. Not necessarily because they have moral qualms, I think they'll have as many as we do. They're just better at it and they will get in there first and realise that they have to. We, I think, will be more cautious because it's our nature.
0: And how would you like to see the UK better preparing itself for the rise of killer robots?
3: I think the uh, international debate, preferably in the United Nations, would be the way I'd want to go about it. But I think there's a a very, very big role for a bloc like NATO to be doing this. I've had experience with the NATO targeting process during the Libya campaign when I um, served in the headquarters in Naples. And the very, very careful way that we applied lethal force in and around Misrata was impressive, to say the least.
0: And just finally, Chris, what do you want people to come away from your book thinking and learning?
3: You know, I hope they think it was an exciting read, but I hope they learn... Um, they learn a bit about the military and how the military operates and also I hope that the message they take away is that there are good ethical moral people involved in this business uh, and I think that ought to encourage people to think that as we get these weapons as I'm sure we will they'll be decent human beings making sure they don't do the things that you see in the wilder media that is out.
0: Yeah. Chris Lincoln-Jones, great to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Mike, um, is it inevitable that we'll let machines decide for themselves where and when to fire their weapons?
4: No, it's not inevitable, but we're on the road in which that is a temptation and we do a little bit of that uh, ultimately. Um, but as, as Chris Lincoln-Jones said, I mean, somebody, a, a human being has got to be in the loop and has got to take the moral responsibility for that and he's in I mean Chris is in a very long tradition of novelists who say something really important scientifically I mean I was thinking about Isaac Asimov in his book I Robot where he draws mm-hmm. up this was many years ago the, the laws of robotics one of which is that you know it must not turn against human beings it must not turn against humanity and while he was while Chris was speaking I was listening there I just checked on my phone the the the, the dates covered by HG Wells's famous book, you know, The Shape of Things to Come, which mm. made a big impression on me. And the data, it, it came out in 1933, and it, it accurately predicted, very accurately predicted, war in Europe in 1940 that mm. would be fought with tanks and machine guns and aircraft and mass bombing, predicted all that. And it saw the war of 1940 going into the 1960s and 1970s until it reduced Europe to an absolute um, wasteland dominated by a few wicked dictators, and in the book, eventually, a sort of a super race emerges, a technological super race, who come in and depose the dictators and establish a new high-tech utopia. And mm. that's how the book finishes. And do you know the date on which the book finishes? Go 20, on. 2016. And that was the year of Donald Trump and Brexit. <laughs> it, it makes you oh. think. It makes you think, right. Kate.
0: It does. Mikey, thank you again for your contribution. And my thanks. That's all we do have time for right now. And my thanks to all of our guests. Um, that is all for now. Professor Michael Clark and I will be back with another sit rep next Thursday. In the meantime, don't forget there is an extra sit rep podcast online now as Ian Duncan Smith explains why he believes China is benefiting from the wars being fought around the world right now and what makes it a threat to the uk that's at bfbs.com slash rep or wherever you get your podcasts for now though from me kate chabot i've got some reading to do thanks for listening bye